Thanks for listening to the Surviving Loving an Addict podcast. The views expressed in this podcast must not be interpreted as personalized medical advice. Those experiencing addiction and those with loved ones experiencing addiction are urged to seek medical attention and professional counseling from providers experienced in addiction therapies and treatment. Thank you. Okay. My name is David Millward. I'm an addiction counselor and ASUDC, Advanced Substance Use Disorder Counselor. And I'm here with my son, Karsten. And, and um, we thought that it might be beneficial to some people to talk about addiction. I know there's a million people talking about it out there. However, maybe we have some unique insights on it. And I wanted to be able to uh, just put another voice out there. Does that sound fair? That's what we were talking about. Yep. Uh, and my name's Karsten Miller. Uh so it's been interesting growing up with a dad uh, who became a licensed substance abuse counselor when I was in junior high school. Um, my wrestling coach at the time, well, I think that was your first time, your first job was with a, a hospital in yeah. Sandy, Utah. Yeah, yeah, Sandy, Utah. In fact, I uh, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life until... Uh, I was about 42 years old when I finally figured out what direction I was supposed to be going. Mm-hmm. And uh, and by a fluke, I went to work at a uh, treatment center in Sandy, Utah. And uh, the first shift I worked as a psych tech, I discovered that uh, that was where I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to do. I, I felt uh, this uh, passion and affinity for addiction treatment and, uh, and for the uh, people that suffered from addiction. And so... Uh, at 42 years old, I went back to school and I uh, went to the University of Utah through the alcohol and drug treatment program. And uh, now I've had a license for uh, about 16 years to... Uh, I'm going to make you move your hands from the mic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're new to this. Yeah. And so about 16 years I've been... Uh, I've had a license as an addictions counselor. It's been 16 years. It's been 16 years. Can't believe it. 2006. Yeah. That's when you got your license? That's when I got my license. Yeah. yeah, that's, wow. I remember, so I remember you coaching wrestling. You starting as a psych tech. Mm-hmm. Highland, did we, were we saying the name? No, we probably better not. But... Well, we'll maybe edit that out. Or maybe we'll leave it in. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, we can say what we need to say. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. yeah so, I, I, oh, so and I'll throw out some of the stuff that I remember. I think this is good. I think this is a good thing to talk about introduction, mm-hmm. how you got into it. Because I think that, well, so what I remember is uh, you loving what you were doing, but then I remember instantly hearing about issues and concerns right. with how some of the places that you were working, how they were handling things. Well, yeah. So being 42 years old, going to school, to learn, uh, first of all, uh, working at a 28-day treatment facility, I thought uh, that everybody would come into treatment 28 days, you plunk down your cash, and you were going to be cured or healed in 28 days. So so somebody with an addiction yeah. shows up, it's an inpatient? Inpatient treatment facility. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you're thinking, oh, 28 days. 28 days, they're done. Yeah. Right? And, uh, you know, it's, it's really funny because since then, as my kids have grown up and gone to school, one of the things that I've reminded them or I've told them is that the education you get in college is important and good, but the real education begins after you get out of school. And I think that's kind of how it was with addiction and treatment. Uh, the information and the ba- basics and groundwork that you have in school is important, but the real education begins after graduation. And uh, in a lot of situations, especially in addiction treatment, discovered that some of the philosophies and some of the um, uh, the ideas that that we were using uh, had become quite antiquated and and even hurtful to people. They had become antiquated, or they were already bad. Well, they were not. They weren't based in in science. Uh, they weren't based in, um, they didn't have a good foundation. Let me just, for so, example, yeah, an example, just for an example, 
one of the things we say and we talk about in addiction treatment is that addiction is a, an illness. And that's something that people will debate, you know, uh, if you haven't got an addictive personality or you're not, and that's not an actual true, true term, but if you haven't had an addiction and, um, you know, you look at it and it looks like somebody's making a choice to be an addict and, you know, how could this possibly be a disease and, and that you're using the idea of a disease so that you can continue to do bad behavior and stuff. Well, here's the issue. We call it a disease because anytime an, uh, an organ changes the way that it functions and operates, for example, the brain, anytime it changes the way it functions and operates, the American Medical Association says that that's a diseased organ. Okay. So in addiction, um, the brain changes the way that it functions and operates, and so we call it a diseased organ. And in a diseased state, you know, there's this idea out there also that, that was very disturbing that said, well, it's something you brought on yourself. So, you know, uh, because of your bad habit and because you did this or that or the other, uh, you know, it couldn't really be a disease and that it was just an excuse. And, you know, my, my argument was, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you get lung cancer because you smoke. Does that make it lung cancer not a true disease? I mean, you get... Uh, Diabetes, a lot of people, because they uh, are couch potatoes, eat, don't exercise and do the wrong things, and they get the disease of, of uh, diabetes. Does that make them a bad person? And it, it really doesn't. In a disease state, you know, we can't moralize uh, a disease state. And so, you know, in the addiction world, there's a lot of lip service given to the idea of this being an, a disease. However, one of the things that rubs me so wrong is in a lot of our treatment settings, we treat it as a moral shortcoming or we treat it as a weak-minded issue, right? We call it a disease, but then we say, you know, that, that we treat people like this as a moral thing. So let's say you have somebody in treatment and part of the problem with the disease of addiction, one of the symptoms is inability to tell the truth. And there's a, a great big you know, explanation to that. But for right now, let's say inability to tell the truth. Well, so I go into a, a treatment center and I lie to you. And now all of a sudden, because I lied to you, you're upset with me and you're going to discharge me and you're going to treat me like I'm a, a reprobate. Well, if this is a disease state, one of the symptoms of the disease of addiction is my inability to be truthful. Shouldn't I, as an addiction treatment center, understand that and have a different perspective on my clients. So to go full circle, so this is one of the one of the first like the, the first concrete point I'll throw out of an antiquated approach to addiction treatment right. yeah. that you that you started seeing. Right. So somebody shows up, and you said a twenty-eight day treatment center, and is this something that you saw happen? So. Somebody tells a lie or doesn't tell the truth about something immediately, and and they're punished. They're punished, discharged, even discharged from treatment. They're punished. They're looked down on. Um, you, you know, unfortunately, it's what I did in in my early days as an addiction counselor. Is is that I would, you know, I would uh, look down on or or be upset with or disappointed in somebody for lying to me or, you know, those kinds of things. When in actuality, inability to tell the truth is a symptom of the disease. And I should be prepared for that and understand that. So do you, was your education, did, were you set up to, uh, to use a tough love approach or an, uh, take no bull crap from people? Was that part of your education? Or is that part of the, is that the first facility that you were working at? Was that the general idea or the people you worked under? Well, so in the education, um, I don't believe that that was part of, you know, what was instructed in educational type stuff. However, in the practical use, getting out into the treatment world, um, so many of the counselors that were my mentors, 
and, and some of them were absolutely amazing mentors. They were incredibly good. But there was a lot of them that had come up in, um, in the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous system, which I absolutely believe in the 12-step program. Uh, but there are some things in the AA program that it has kind of evolved into that are, are not very healthy, right? One of them is an idea that everybody can do this the same way, you know, and, and, and one, another thing is, is that you're going to um, humiliate or guilt or shame somebody into uh, making changes in their lives. You know, you're going you're gonna to pound it into them. Those kinds of um, beliefs or practices just aren't practical and they're not effective. They're just not effective. So that's, you know, that, that part of, there's one thing, just the, the calling it a disease, but treating it as if it is a, a weak-minded, immoral shortcoming in a person. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, and, so, and, and you're saying that your mentors came from the AA culture. culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so they're, and I can understand that. So many, uh, a lot of the things that I've done in my life and jobs that I've had, there's just a culture, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and it's not necessary. I don't know. The culture associates with different things that maybe have nothing to do with the textbook, but so that makes sense. So, yeah. so your mentors, your first facility, helped instill that, or or push, well, or somehow that was created. The the tough love approach, I'll call it, yeah. of oh, you lied to me, and now you're going to get punished for it. Now there's punishment. Yeah. Right. Now, at the same time, I don't want to throw everybody under the bus because I had some amazing mentors that uh, were truly gifted counselors and and able to, you know, um, able to uh, see past those kinds of things. And, and, and they really were good addiction counselors. But there was a, a huge, a huge portion of the society of, of, of addiction treatment that it was the tough love going to beat you up, going to make you succumb and, and, and follow our rules. And, you know, uh, I know I get a lot of flack from it, but there's a lot of AA people that, uh, that sometimes we look at as AA Nazis and it's my way or the highway. And this is how it's going to be. And, uh, and I really don't believe that that's what Bill W and, and, uh, Bob and Bob S had in mind when the program began. And if you read through the book, it's absolutely not what they had in mind. Uh, so, those things were difficult. Those kinds of things were difficult. Um, moving on just a little bit more, because this uh, more currently in the addiction treatment world, you know, we've got a, uh, we have a war on opioids, the opioid epidemic. Um, it is amazing to me that in this war on opioids, some of the best tools that we have for overcoming opioid addiction are the most legislated and restricted. So for example, the, the physician that I work with and all other physicians can basically write out as many scripts for as many pills of opioids as they want to do. I mean, there's, there's very little oversight. Don't get me wrong, there is oversight. But, but they basically have a, a free run of being able to prescribe as much as they want. Even with a new awareness, they can still prescribe. And, um, and there's, you know, you don't have to have a special DEA license to be able to do that. You just as a provider can do that. So, that, and, uh, so for people that aren't uh, around the addiction world, mm-hmm. or, uh, oh, let's clarify. So you mentioned opioids. Um, to me, that means heroin. I've two, okay. I have two friends overdose growing up on heroin. That's an opiate, right? Right. Opiate, opioid. Uh, is that the same thing? Opiates, opioid. Yeah. So when we talk about opioids or opiates, we're talking and in including in that uh, heroin, uh, methadone, um, oxycontin, oxycontin. Hydromorphone, all the the hydrocone, you know, all those 
uh, Lortabs, Percocets, all those kinds of medications. Those are all opioids. And they're all, and so they're all typically painkillers. Painkillers. But they're a special level of painkiller. Right. And unless it's synthetic, it usually basically comes from a poppy plant. That's uh, where it comes from. So it's, it's the same reason that if I eat, uh, uh, this is... <laughs> yeah, but uh, there are jokes about if I eat too many poppy seed muffins, then you I can, can fail a positive. drug test, which is positive. actually which is actually true. <laughs> if okay. you get too many of those in, you, you're not going to get high, but you're going to fail the drug test, <laughs> and then, then you get fired, right? But but so opioids, you know, it's a funny thing. So in the addiction treatment world, in the uh, AA world, it is. And all or nothing, either you're off everything or you're not being successful and being clean. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, if this is a if this is a a true illness, there are so many other illnesses that we have where we have medications that are able to help us have quality of life, right? So Well and okay. Yeah. Before you before you go on too much, so I want to talk about because this to me it was something that always blew me away. Like I grew up in a pretty, uh, pretty nice city in Utah, and uh, was actually a police officer here. And I'd worked in another city, so we're talking about Bountiful City, Utah. Right. Uh, I was a police officer in another city for a year, and then I came and worked in Bountiful, and started finding heroin and making heroin arrests weekly more than weekly. I mean, my very first day on patrol in Bountiful City, it was 15 minutes before I made a heroin arrest. Um, but one thing that I did find that I, I don't think I ever made an arrest for was prescription pills, right? Both opiates. And these are like, you have clients that use heroin and you have clients that use opiates, pills, Percocet, lower tab, whatever they can. Yeah. Right. So, and I think it's important to uh, point out that when we talk about addiction and who this can, can touch, it, it doesn't start, it, it can be different for anybody, right? Yeah. There are infinite ways to get into an addiction and it's not always starting with a gateway drug. It could be a, an injury, like a car accident. And, and you were pointing out that the doctor that you work with doesn't have limitations or doesn't really have limitations on how much, uh, how much he can prescribe as a medical provider. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now that being spoken because the doctor I work with specializes in addiction treatment, he's probably right. the most judicious doctor I've ever seen. That's but doctors in general. But, yeah. So this stands for all, all doctors in yeah. general. You, you feel like there's not a, a super strict oversight in the prescriptions that they write regarding opiates. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll just keep calling them opiates. Opiates. Yeah. Here. Yeah. And, and, and the reason being, one of the, one of the reasons being is, is that, you know, if a patient comes in the office complaining of pain, there's no way to indicate or to determine how much pain a person has other than what they say. There's, there's no, scientific thing that we look at and go, well, you really don't have that much pain because if they report pain, then, you know, the doctor is pretty, you know, uh, obligated to treat the pain that they report. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about this. You know, when we look at addiction, we tend to think about uh, the guy underneath the, 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 uh, the overpass. overpass or in a box someplace or whatever. But, you know, nowadays especially, I, I don't, I bet more than half of the people that become addicted to opiates and, and eventually go to heroin uh, are the upstanding, you know, uh, never dreamt of using an illicit drug in their entire lives who through, you know, injury or um, many other situations take a pain pill and uh, and take another one, and when they discover that it uh, does a better job on blocking their emotional pain than it did in, on their physical pain, they become dependent on it pretty quickly. 
And opiates, especially in your system, have a, a course that they will run. You start off, let's say you start off with a Lord tab or a Percocet. Uh, after a period of time, you develop tolerance. And tolerance means that it takes more and more of a chemical to get the same effect. So one, one Lord tab today turns into a half bottle down the road, turns into, um, you know, um, eating 100 of them every two days, which is not unrealistic. Wow. And the problem is, is that at a certain point for somebody, let's say you're going to your physician, you're getting pain pills from a physician for a legitimate injury, and then you uh, develop a, a tolerance and a, a dependence on them. Now the physician's not going to write those for you anymore, and you're buying them off the street. Now you're paying exorbitant amounts of money to get the same the pills that you need just so you don't get sick. And now you can't afford to pay for all those pills. Well, the next logical step is that you're going to start using heroin because heroin is so much less expensive. You can buy one little tiny uh, balloon of heroin. And when I talk about a balloon, I'm talking about the very tip end of a little balloon would have some tar heroin in it for $10. That will do the same thing that you're paying $150 for prescription drugs that you're buying off the street. And so economically, you have to move to the heroin. And um, tolerance-wise, you have to move to the heroin because you can't get enough prescription pills to... And this isn't about getting high at this point. This is about not being deathly ill and feeling like you're going to die. You can't get enough prescription pills to cover that. And so you move it to heroin. And, and then, then the next course of heroin, as you go, you start off because nobody likes pills. And, and this is a generalization. So you start off by smoking it, putting it on, you know, a little piece of tinfoil and heating it up and and, smoke, and, and inhaling the fumes, the, the, yeah, the vapors. Um, pretty soon, your tolerance starts to go up to the point where now you're burning up more than you're using. And so you have to, to get the same effect that you had when you first started using one tiny bit of heroin, now you have to move to injecting it. And it is just this course of action that happens. It's a steady path that any person that gets into this will go down. And, and you know, we moralize it, we are disgusted with it, but the reality of it is, it is, it is about being able to function and operate day to day and not be miserable. That's that would that's what drives it. So what you're saying is disturbing because it so you talked about there not being a huge um oversight on physicians being able to write prescriptions. But I but I know that's not true. Right. There, I mean I know that there is as a police officer, I know that there, or having been a police officer, I, I recall that there was a uh, a database, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. one doctor, could, could one doctor see what another doctor had prescribed? Well, the, so the yesterday? database, the, yeah, the database so, is Doppel yeah. is what it is. Okay. And a, and a physician can get on this database and look up a, a patient. Okay. And the database will indicate every physician that the, the patient's been to, uh, the pharmacies that he's gone to, it will show all the prescriptions that he's used. Okay. And, and so a physician can get on and look and see, well, you know, overseers can do the same kind of thing. Regulators can do the same kind of thing. You know, there, there's that kind of ability to get in, in and look okay. in the system. Okay. So, so then the, what I'm getting, what I'm arriving at is, uh, the oversight and, and Doppel is Department of Public Licensing, Licensing mm -hmm. if I'm correct. Okay. So I'm curious if the oversight for prescription, uh, for writing prescriptions for a physician, if say the DEA, do they use that system for their oversight? Mm. Well, I'm sure they it comes in, I'm sure it comes into play, but you know what? I'm really not. I'm I'm really not able to say okay. one way or another. So, and then my other question: So, do you know if physicians are um, 
say a physician is prescribing an opiate to a patient for three months. What could cause the physician to all of a sudden say, oh, I cannot prescribe this anymore? Aside from their medical belief, is, is there, or their medical uh, approach, is there, is there, is there some state limitation that says, hey, you can only have this many patients on? No, no, on opioids, you know, prescribing pain medications. Um, and, and I'm making broad generalizations here because in reality, uh, with the war on drugs, there has been a little more oversight, but, but not the kind of regulation you would think there should be, you know, as mm-hmm. far as this goes. And so, um, Typically what happens with a, a client or a patient coming in and getting pain pills from a doctor is that uh, the doctor will prescribe, let's say you prescribe, just pulling numbers out of the air, let's say you prescribe 30 pills for 30 days. And in 25 days, the patient comes back and says, I'm out of pills. All right. And the, pres- the provider will prescribe another 30 pills for 30 days. Let's say that happens a few times, but each time... Uh, the, but now this time it works. They they the, come back fifteen days later. Fifteen days uh-huh. later, and then pretty soon they're you know, uh, fifteen pills in, in or thirty pills in five or ten days. There there's red flags that go up for the physician that says, hey, wait a minute, this is this is out of control. There could be a problem here, and so at that point, you know, a lot of doctors will will cut off a client and say, hey, no more. Okay, so and, and that's what I was. Okay, so that's. This is what's disturbing me is, is I have to put myself in the shoes because this could happen to anybody. I, right. I put myself in the shoes of I'm driving down the road and I get rear-ended. Like I stop at a red light, I get rear-ended and, and I have serious neck pain. So I end up going to a doctor. I'm, I hurt and the doctor prescribes Percocet to help with the pain. And my understanding in previous conversations with you is that some people have a predisposition for addiction and some people don't. I remember you explaining uh, once that one person, they might take a Percocet and it will make them ill, Um, sick. It will help the pain, but it will make them sick and they won't want that. But some people are, the predisposition is an emotional state. Um, And maybe when they take that Percocet, it it numbs not only the pain but some of the emotional issues that they've been having as well. So so I put myself in those shoes of maybe I'm going through a hard time or something happened to me earlier in life or whatever it is, but I take that first Percocet, Percocet or whatever opiate it is, and uh, and I start taking them, and it helps, but it's setting me up for failure um, because I have a thirty days. I have 30 pills and 30 days and I'm still hurting. And, and as that first month goes on, I'm, uh, I'm becoming dependent. I use more than the 30 in my first 30 days. I show up, the doctor helps me out because he knows that I'm a good guy. Oh yeah. I, I see you all the time. He doesn't think that I'm the, you said the guy under the overpass. Mm-hmm. Right. And so here's another, here are 30 more. Right. And I start growing more and more of a dependency. And the, the last thing uh, it sounds like, uh, unfortunately, uh, this has to be happening is, and this is the trap, is that a lot of doctors don't have the time to be thinking about this or they don't. I mean, a, a general physician has how many patients in a day and I show up, get my next supply. I use a few more each day and all of a sudden, whether it's the second set of pills or the third set of pills, the doctor, there's a red flag in his mind, his or her mind. And they say, Oh, I'm cutting you off. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm in trouble, right? Cause I can't go to the You're next doctor. The, the next doctor can see on this doppel site exactly what happened. And, and, and how do I, how do I get rid of this? And, and I could be in a position emotionally, physically, I could be in like, serious physical pain now that I've I've been my body to help my physical and emotional pain has been using an opiate instead of my own dopamine 
to make me feel good, all of a sudden I'm I'm using the opiate just to maintain a a even kilter. homeostasis. Yeah. Yeah, not to get high, but just just to be okay. And then boom. Yeah. I get dropped off. And depending on who I know or what I know, like it, it, you you raise the point. I cannot get more of no. the, the pill, but what but I can find heroin. True. And but what a doctor's yeah. gonna do, so let me back up too, is what a doctor most likely is gonna do is gonna refer refer you to a pain clinic. Ah. So you get referred to a pain clinic and um you know, one of the problems with a doctor prescribing a lot of opiates and somebody becoming dependent and using tons of them is, is that your liability goes way up because, you know, likelihood of overdose starts to become a real issue, right? And so I, as a provider, I don't want to uh, deal with that. So I'm going to refer you to a pain clinic, which takes on a bigger um, um, management thing of, of pain pills and, and, you know, they can proceed down this road a little further than a regular physician does. And tr- and, mo- and there's a lot of pain clinics nowadays are really working hard to try to get people off of prescription opiates, you know, pain pill stuff. But there's still a lot of them out there that just continue to feed, hand out the pills to people. Ultimately, you come to a point where you have to do something besides just the pills that you're getting. Because the dependence... And the tolerance increases to the point where you can't buy enough regular pain pills to be able to manage what you need to have happen. So going back, let's step back a little bit further here about, you know, about uh, predisposition. Because it's interesting that, you know, you talk about people taking an opioid and opioid and becoming sick. I mean... There's some physiological things. Sometimes, you know, uh, depending on the pills, they might have acetaminophen or they might have ibuprofen or, or other, other medications combined in with them that, that can cause people upset and stuff. But the thing that I'm talking about is, is that people that have generally well-balanced lives, that they're emotionally pretty uh, stable, able to handle responsibility and stress and pressure in healthy ways, right? A lot of those people take an opiate and the opioids will uh, cause them to feel drowsy and tired and groggy and, and, and they don't like that feeling, that little bit of out of control and, you know, kind of a feeling and, 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 and it doesn't appeal to them. However, let's say that you're somebody that has a lot of emotional stress or, you know, turmoil going on in your life. Well, one of the things that an opioid does is that it blocks our ability to have uh, appropriate emotional responses and so while opiates actually they do a a fair job on physical pain they don't do a a tremendous job on physical pain but they'll do a fair to adequate job on physical pain but they do a tremendous job on emotional pain and emotional pain the crazy thing about pain is is that our our psyche can't distinguish between emotional pain and physical pain your brain doesn't know if your thumb hurts or if your heart aches. Or if you're having chronic back problems, we'll probably, let's say, better. And so in your psyche, when there's pain, let's say that you have, that you're, let's say you're a chronic pain person and you've got a, uh, a back problem. And, and legitimately, you know, it's in a lot of pain. Whenever you have an emotional uh, downturn or stress or problems, what happens is, is that your your psyche will perceive that and assign it to the back pain. Now, all of a sudden, you're, as a chronic back pain person, all of a sudden, your back pain is going to shoot through the roof and you're, it's going to call on you to have another pill to be able to take care of that physical pain. When in reality, and, and the pain is pain, Right? But in reality, the pain you may be experiencing is emotional pain. And through the action of the opioid, it blocks my emotional pain responses. And so when that becomes our coping mechanism for dealing with life, now I'm always going to have pain because I'm always going to need those pills. Right? 
let, let me let me mention incidentally um, there is chemical dependence and there's addiction and sometimes we interchange those those words of chemical dependence and, and, and addiction right chemical dependence you know is is a condition where as you're taking a medication or you're doing something and if you stop taking it, you're going to have a, an adverse effect, physiologically, emotionally, or both. That's a that's a huge sign of a chemical dependence. And and you think about chemical dependence. All right. Uh, so how many people are chemical dependent in the world? <coughs> how many? <coughs> Excuse me. Can well, you consider caffeine. Well. Or something like yeah, that. Actually, caffeine. Stop drinking caffeine. I get headaches. Or... Yeah. So, so if you stop drinking Coke or Diet Coke and you have headaches and you feel sluggish and run down, all that kind of stuff, it's an indication that you have a chemical dependence on caffeine, right? How about people that are on Prozac if they stop taking their Prozac and they have an emotional response? Or how about people on thyroid if they quit taking their thyroid or if they quit taking their insulin or their blood pressure medications? or any of a million medications out there that we take for quality of life, if you quit taking them and you have an, you know, a physiological or emotional problem with it, that's an indication that you're chemically dependent on it. However, how many of those people do we look down our nose at as being reprobates? I'd say probably none of them because they have a legitimate physical need for this thing that they're taking, right? So chemical dependence is one thing. Oh, incidentally, oh man, I tell you what, when people say that they're addicted, I'm addicted to Diet Coke. I'm addicted to chocolate. I'm addicted to a bunch of other things. Um, man, if you knew what kind of disservice you, you are doing to true addiction, right? Because you just have minimalized true addiction. Because addiction is when you have a chemical dependence, but you will do something that is illegal, immoral, or dishonest to maintain your chemical dependence. And then what happens is, is that addiction is a behavioral condition associated with a chemical dependence. And the chemical dependence actually can be something we ingest into our body, or it can be the release of our own chemistry in our body. We can talk about that, you know, through things like pornography or gambling or a bunch of other things. But but doing things that are illegal, immoral, or dishonest to maintain a chemical dependence all of a sudden puts us in an addiction. Would you classify addiction as a as a level of chemical dependence? No, it's not a level of chemical or, dependence. It's or a... would you separate it completely away from chemical dependence? But you're just comparing and contrasting the two. Just... Well, what happens is, is that you cross a threshold. Um, so you have your chemical dependence, but now my chemical dependence is that I, now I'm doing things that I can say illegal, immoral, or dishonest to be able to maintain that chemical dependence. All right. Um, and so addiction is the behavioral condition associated with a chemical dependency. So that brings up a great point. Uh, I mean, you use the word reprobates, right? And you consider, I mean, there are lots of people that take medications mm -hmm. for, like you're saying, you name it, right? But we don't look, we don't look down our noses at somebody for using a medication, but, but we do get a sour taste in our mouth with the idea of the word addiction, right? And uh, nowadays, you hear the word addiction all the time, and it's not just talking about somebody who has an opioid addiction. Um, I hear it all the time. People say, oh, I'm, I'm addicted to Diet Coke. Uh, but how does that make you feel? And what do you think that, I mean, addiction is, it's a strong word. Yeah, it's very strong. I mean, is, is that a thing? Am I, I, I drink, I love Coca-Cola. This is not a commercial for Coca-Cola, but, <laughs> but it, 
I like drinking caffeine, and if I go, if I just drink a bunch of caffeine for a week and then I stop, I get headaches. Am I addicted to caffeine? No, you're chemically dependent on caffeine. And when you stop drinking it, you're going to have a headache or you're going to have some other effects when you don't have the chemical in your system. So the uh, chemical dependence is just a, there's, there's an effect. It, there's if an I effect. stop using it, there's an effect. There's an effect. Okay. Yeah. Now. So how would you compare that with addiction? So addiction, you can't just stop using something. And because you can't just stop using it, because now you have a compulsive need to use it. Wait, so you say, I just can't stop using it. I mean... You, you know, it's interesting. I've been doing this a long time, and on probably one hand, I can count the number of people that were able to just quit cold turkey on anything that they were doing if they were truly addicted to it. Behavioral condition and... And the the you know the um, chemical dependency condition, a handful of people out of tens of thousands of clients. Tens, okay, tens of thousands of clients. Right. I think this is a huge point to make. I, like this to me, this is why I wanted to sit down and have this conversation because me, the way that you're explaining it, I have never experienced an addiction. Right. There, like, I feel like in my life, but whatever's come my way, I've had, uh, I've maintained my agency, my ability to make a decision. You say, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And it's never been completely coerced, especially like, especially by my own brain. Right. But, so could you, after having counseled and worked with, that incredible number of people who've been actually, by the definition, addicted to a substance. Can you help somebody who maybe has a loved one who's going through addiction? Um, or like, I, I envision a spouse or of an addict, a, a parent or a sibling of an addict. What would you say to them? What would you tell them that it's hard to find out there. I mean, you hear the word addict and it's, it sounds like, oh yeah, I just make a choice. I stop using. That's it. And it's just, it's just my choice, right? Why don't I just stop? But what would you tell the spouse, the parent, the sibling, the grandparent? Uh, what would you say to them? So if you to want to get paint the picture of addiction for you, what's happening to their loved ones. So if you want to get the, um, if you want to be able to get a sense of the, the drama that plays out in the addict, right? So that you know what they're going through. And, and I'll throw out there. Let's tie it to something that, uh, mm -hmm. that is common to yeah. people. Let's talk about ibuprofen. No, let, let me give you no? a better example. Okay. Okay. A better example. Because what happens when you actually have an addiction... And in that, when you start having withdrawals and there's this, this feeling of dread that begins to grow from the pit of your stomach out of fear and just darkness, okay? Let me tell you what happens. So you're talking about, so you're talking about our friend, the addict. Our friend, the addict. Who's right now discovering themselves with, a, with what is now more than a habit. It's now more than more than a chemical dependence. More than, yeah. we're, and we're gonna. Now I've got to do something because yeah. I am fearful that I'm going to so that there's impending doom coming because I don't have something to use. And they've now reached the point of addiction. Right. So yeah. So walk us through what what that so, is. But let me let me let me okay. give you an example so that you can kind of maybe empathize because when I was in high school, a wrestler. One of the things we love to do is to, uh, just for the laughs and giggles, is choke each other out. So, you know, you put your arm around somebody's neck, you cut off the arteries, and then you pass out, and then come to, and woohoo, what a guess, right? It was a lot of fun. Everybody does that. <laughs> well, well one, time, uh, one time, one of the littler guys on the team jumped up and grabbed me around the neck. And instead of having my arteries, he had me right across the, the throat. And his little bony arm was pressing in on my throat, and it hurt, number one. Number two, 
I couldn't breathe. And I remember tapping him with my elbow, trying to get him to let go. And he wouldn't let go. And I remember at one point, finally taking a breath and breathing in and looking around at everything that was kind of busted up and he was on the ground and he was hurting. And, you know, when my brain said, breathe or die, all common sense shut off. Every, everything that would say, don't hurt somebody, don't whatever, it was gone. And I had one mission and that was to take a breath. And as soon as I took the breath, and I looked around and I saw him laying there and some broken things, I thought, oh my gosh, I did this? If you can imagine in a person who is chemically addicted, and let's say to an opiate, and there is this impending doom that grows, and this feeling of, I don't know what I'm going to do if I'm sick, but it just grows as a darkness. And pretty soon, in a compulsive state, I am looking for a way to take a breath, so to speak, I'd do anything that it takes to get a drug. I'd, I'd steal from family and friends. I'd walk into a pharmacy with no mask on my face, as we've seen so many times in the news, and hold them up just to get a, a handful of pills. I would rob, steal, cheat, do anything I have to, to be able to, in that same experience, take a breath. And it's after you take a breath, after you've taken the pill, after you've taken the drug, and you and you look around and you go, oh crap, I've done this again. And let me tell you, there is nothing that you can say to the addict after they have hurt you or stole from you or whatever that will beat them up, that will guilt them or shame them worse than they are already doing to themselves at that very moment. Wow. So this is, I mean, that's the fence pretty, pretty serious picture. This, I mean, I, I understand that same response that we all have to live or die, to live or die, that I need yeah. to, I need to breathe and your body can take over yeah. and run, do whatever it needs to do. Like and your story to get that guy off your back and stop, stop him from choking it. You will, you will thrash and destroy because your brain is forcing you to do it. Takes over. It takes over. And it's a, it's a, it's a response. So it's not, it's not like, this isn't a moral no. failure. This no. isn't me. If, if I'm an addict and I'm holding up a, a pharmacy. It's it's not me. It, it's we're not condoning that. It's, it's not, not a good decision to do that. But it but we're trying. We're painting the picture of it's, how you can get to there. I'm in that state of I need to breathe and whatever trail of carnage and destruction that I leave behind me, like it's. It's really difficult to confront somebody in that in yeah. that state and to slow them, slow them down. I mean, well, yeah, and 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 but and here's the other thing. You know, as you said, we're not condoning it. I I I believe that um, regardless of your, you know, if you're using drugs and you're out and you're doing these things, you will pay the price. You know, you don't get a free ride, even even, you know, when you're in that state because. You know, we, we pay the price. Uh, but to the idea that this is a joyride for most of these people or that this is just a woohoo moment, we're talking about in serious addiction, we're talking about people just trying to survive. And so you raise a good point, right? Because I think we think of addiction, people getting high. Oh, I just need to get high. It's not about having fun and getting high. I mean, that sounds like recreational drug use for right. a moment. Right, and and I don't I don't and most would you say most addiction even starts like that? You know, most addicts, the recreational part of drug use lasts a very short time. You know, there's a very small window when people can use and walk away and you know do the whole weekend party scene and and everything. That's a very short period of time. 
Um, ultimately, it turns into, I'm not doing this to get high. I have become dependent on this to be able to survive. I do this so that I feel normal, so that I can get up in the morning, so I can go to the job, so I can just survive. Because without it now, I'm going to be so miserable, I can't bear the thought of, of my day-to-day activities. Can't, I can't even... Can... And, it's, and it's more than that, yeah. right? It's not even, oh, I'm miserable. Because a, a person not in addiction mm-hmm. can be miserable. And can make decisions and sacrifices and can deal with right. misery. But a but a person experiencing true addiction. It, it's, it's a it is a I'm going to die if I don't do this thought. So we talk about this trail of carnage. Obviously, somebody can't create that carnage without hurting loved ones. Yeah. So what would you say to those loved ones that have somebody going through addiction right now? Is this, is, is, is the, is the addict making choices to, to attack their loved ones? Well, are they being selfish? Are they being inconsiderate? Are they choosing? Where are they? Well, you know, on, on the surface of it, looking at it, yeah, they're making bad choices. They're they're hurting their loved ones. They are, uh, you know, doing all these things, right? But understanding that it's driven from a place of I'm trying to survive is is really important. It's it's not a wanton desire to destroy and hurt other people. It is a need to be okay and to feel all right. Um, you know, it occurs to me as we're sitting here talking that uh, that some people might be listening, thinking that I'm making excuses for addiction or for people that are addicts and for bad behaviors and all those kinds of things. And and I, I don't want that to be the message because I'm I'm absolutely not. But what I'm I would like to hope that people get from this is a little better understanding of of the reality of addiction and and the pain of addiction and uh, and you ask you know family members what you know you have a loved one um, for most people the first thing that a family member should do is figure out how to take care of themselves you know um, if you consider that that the only person that can fix the addict is the addict that as a family member you don't have that kind of power and control to fix another person you know one of the greatest things about being a counselor i say greatest because uh you know it helps you understand your place is that as a counselor i can't fix anybody i don't have that kind of power or control when we started tonight talking about the misconception that you had your very first job as a side tag saying oh it's a 28-day program. A client shows up for 28 days. They're fixed. Right. They're healed. Yep. So uh, I think that uh, we've, we've come full circle. Right. So again, talking to that family member, the only person that can fix an addict is themselves. How, how would you tie those two together? So or those two points together. So the best thing that a family can do to help an addict decide to be in recovery, number one is to be as healthy as they can possibly be themselves. Um, To watch for opportunity for the loved one who's suffering from addiction to, uh, to have an opening where they want to make a change in their lives. When a loved one is ready to make a change, um, at that point, a family member can be of help by directing them or assisting them in getting into treatment or, or different things. But uh, until a person, until an addict is ready to make a change, until they're willing to do whatever it takes, if you throw money at it or, you know, any of those kinds of things, it's going to be a, a lost effort. And, and it's one of the hardest things. I've had so many times families come in 
bring a loved one in that they want us to fix and and you can't fix them. There's, you know, in fact, I, I tell people all the time, if you walk into a treatment center and they say, we will fix you, I say turn around and run out because they can't fix anybody. Now here's what a treatment center can do and here's what a counselor can do is that they can help a person that is ready to make changes in their lives find a different way to live life. So when I say that, sobriety is not using. Sobriety is you just don't pick up and use drugs. Well, if you're a sober person, AA says statistically you have a 3 to 7% chance of remaining sober for any period of time. It's pretty discouraging. Yeah. Now, recovery, on the other hand, is you're sober and you change the way you live your life. Then the percentages flop the other direction. A person that is truly in recovery, that has changed how they live their life, doesn't have a need to go back to drugs and alcohol for coping or, or for getting pleasure out of life. So helping a person to get into recovery, uh, recovery happens when they're ready to make those kinds of changes. Now, I think as we go down the road, maybe the next few podcasts, we'll talk about how to get the family help and, uh, and what actual treatment should look like for somebody that's trying to be in recovery. Does that sound good? I think that sounds great. Um, I think, I think tonight we have a great find. Yeah. We have a lot to talk about, a lot of time to, uh, to be thinking about a lot of things. And so if we've confused you and, you'll, and left you, um, it, floundering or wondering why where are we going with you are, yeah like maybe we didn't go full circle on a lot of things but uh, hopefully we have answered some questions yeah i think the goal moving forward will be to <laughs> if it's possible to uh, pick some topics and talk through those uh and try to stay on them but <laughs> but i don't know if that can be done and i uh I think, I, I, I think uh, we'll just do our best and go from there. Uh, bear with us. We'll have we'll have some good stuff. And if you have anything that you would like us to talk about specifically, feel free to reach out. Yeah, yeah well, uh, <laughs> we we should we should so we should tell our story real quick on how this. Uh, yeah, go for it. So yeah, <laughs> Yesterday, I was visiting dad at his office, and uh, we started talking. We talk about addiction quite a bit. It just yeah. comes up because it's a, I mean, it's his full-time job. It's something that's curious to me. I helped open when I was a young EMT. Before I was a police officer, I helped open a, a, a treatment center, an inpatient treatment center. And something that, having been a police officer, having arrested people, uh, struggling with addiction, like that's yeah, it's it's a curious thing. We talk about it a lot, but after a long discussion yesterday, we we decided it was time to either make a book, an audio book, or a podcast. And you, <laughs> you are lucky to be uh, listening to option C, <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe we're just grateful to be able to be talking about it and feeling like we can do something besides just sit in the office and chat between ourselves yeah yeah actually that's i think that's the biggest thing is we we believe that there are people out there who i'll be specific i believe that there are people out there a lot of people out there that need to hear uh what need to hear reality honest talk about it yeah from somebody that knows what he's talking about because it's a it's a whirlwind if, if you have a loved one going through addiction I, I can't imagine the pain. Yeah. So, uh, well, let me let me throw in one last word before we get off here, okay? Great. I think one of the things that breaks my heart the most, you know, as a as a treatment provider, is as I watch the addiction treatment industry out there that um, has profited so much on on the war on drugs and put money into their own pockets. I mean. Uh, you know, this is will take a lot of heat, but this is sometimes 
can appear to be an incredibly corrupt industry that takes advantage of pain and suffering of loved ones and profits off of that. And for me, it's reprehensible and I, I just can't bear it. And so hopefully being able to be open and honest and talk about a few things will help those listening be better prepared or able to help their loved ones or even find help for themselves. So, um, can we get more? We will look forward to the next opportunity to talk with you. And once again, this is David Millward. And Karsten Millward. Good evening.